2: next is produced at connecticut public radio and is powered by the new england news collaborative eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the corporation for public broadcasting
3: i'm john dankoski thanks so much for joining us we're going to start this week's show with a deep dive into the confusing tangle of immigration law and we're going to start with an unusual court case in boston A federal appeals court heard arguments centering on whether immigration and customs enforcement can deport immigrants, even though they've been granted a state pardon for past crimes. Two residents of Connecticut are currently in ICE detention, facing deportation, even though their records have been cleared. Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson introduces us to one of them.
0: Weizarra Walton came to the U.S. from England when she was four years old and lived legally in Connecticut as a permanent resident for most of her life. In her teens and 20s, she had a string of arrests for nonviolent offenses.
4: Licenies and conspiracy to commit licenies, stuff like that, those are really my only charges.
0: Walton is speaking from an ICE detention center in Boston. She's been fighting a removal order since 2012 on several fronts by filing for a special U visa, submitting a motion to reopen her case, and last year, applying to the state of Connecticut for a pardon for her crimes.
4: I had to get letters from people, like, saying my character and whatnot. I mean, I get it. I, you know, did the crime, but I also was, years ago when I was much younger, I mean... You know, anybody doesn't just get a pardon. You have to be free of crime for a period of time.
0: And when she first got word that she'd been granted a full and unconditional pardon, Walton says she was thrilled.
4: I was ecstatic. I was so happy, like, you know, not only for the ICE reasons, but also, you know, getting a better job and being able to better my family.
0: But the paperwork for the pardon didn't come through till March, one day after she was picked up by ICE.
4: And then being detained right after that you know it's devastating like like what's going on, like why is this happening?
5: It does surprise me for a number of reasons.
0: Connecticut Attorney General William Tong.
5: Number one, because courts, including federal courts, have before considered Connecticut's pardons to be effective with respect to federal immigration purposes. And uh, under federal immigration law, if you receive a full, absolute and unconditional pardon from your state, you are entitled to an automatic
3: waiver of deportation.
0: The language of federal immigration law states that pardons must come from a governor or U.S. president. But that's not how pardons work in Connecticut. Here, the governor delegates authority to a board of pardons and paroles, and Tong says it appears that ICE is exercising its discretion in not recognizing the state's pardon process. Heather Prendergast is an immigration attorney and an elected director on the Board of Governors for the American Immigration Lawyers Association. She points out that Connecticut is not the only state where a board grants pardons. That's how it works in Georgia, too.
6: I actually reached out to some of my colleagues that practice in Georgia and they've indicated that indeed, ICE does honor those pardons. The only difference that I can see as someone who's not at the agency is that one state has policies that are arguably very favorable to ICE's position, whereas the other
5: state does not. And so my question as the Attorney General is, why are you treating Connecticut different than places like Georgia?
0: Again, William Tong.
5: I hope that it's not a partisan basis, but it sure feels that way.
0: Speaking from the Boston detention facility, Wazara Walton says she doesn't get it.
4: I don't see what the difference would be in this state. Like It's America, you know, so I figured every state would follow the same process.
0: ICE declined to comment on its policy regarding pardons, but in a statement says that Walton is an unlawfully present citizen of the United Kingdom. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Diane Orson.
3: So here's another question. When can the government take away an individual's liberty by placing that person in jail? Well, it turns out the answer depends on the court system. In the criminal justice system, the burden rests on the government. It needs to explain why a person is a danger to the community or a flight risk. But the burden switches in civil immigration detention hearings where the individual has to prove why he or she is not a danger or flight risk. The ACLU of Massachusetts believes that's unconstitutional and is suing to change it from WBUR Shannon Dooling has more.
7: These are happy days for Gilberto Pereira Brito and his yeah. family. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. We saw fireworks in those like they going like, up and down in those colors.
7: Sitting in the kitchen of their Brockton apartment, his three young children climb all over him like he's yeah. a human jungle yeah. gym. Four-year-old Talia's eyes light up when she talks about the fireworks they watched together on the 4th of July. But just beneath the surface of this summertime revelry, Pereira Brito and his family are still coming to terms with the very recent past, including an encounter with federal immigration officials.
1: I'm in a process with them, and they're talking back and forth to us, to my lawyer, and I really don't expect to come in my house and pick me up.
7: 39-year-old Pereira Brito is from Brazil. He says U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, knew his address because he's applying for a green card. His wife, Darcy, is a U.S. citizen, as are their three children. But more than a year after receiving approval to begin the process of adjusting his status, he was arrested by ICE at his home in March, while his children looked on from the driveway. 10-year-old Tatiana remembers being confused that day and trying to comfort her younger sister.
8: It was kind of hard because Talia, she would always cry. She would always say that she misses him. And um, we would say that my dad's working because we didn't want to make her get too sad about it.
7: Pereira Brito illegally crossed the border in 2005. He's since been charged with driving infractions, including operating a car without a license and while under the influence of alcohol. According to court documents, those are his only interactions with local law enforcement. When he went before an immigration judge for a bond hearing, he was asked to prove why he's neither a danger to the community nor a flight risk. Pereira-Brito's attorney collected documents, like his children's U.S. birth certificates, proof of his wife's disabilities, which prevent her from working, and a history of his long-term residence in Brockton. All of this in an effort to prove his ties to the community. But it wasn't enough. Pereira Brito was detained without bond and spent more than three months behind bars in Plymouth County's ICE detention unit.
5: The government should not be taking people away from their families, should not be taking them away from their homes, Um, should not be putting them in jail unless the government can show that there's a very good reason why that's necessary.
7: Dan McFadden is a staff attorney with the ACLU of Massachusetts, which recently filed a class action suit against the Department of Homeland Security on behalf of Pereira Brito and others. The organization argues the government is constitutionally required to prove why a person should be deprived of liberty. But that's the exact opposite of the way it works in immigration court, according to the ACLU.
5: The government comes to court and the government doesn't have to prove anything to keep that person in jail. Instead, the individual is told they have to prove that they are not a danger and not a flight risk. They have to prove a negative.
7: The ACLU argues it hasn't always been this way. But in 1999, a decision from the highest court in the immigration system essentially flipped the burden in bond hearings to the detainee. Andrew Arthur is a former immigration judge and government attorney. He's currently with the Center for Immigration Studies, which favors stricter rules for immigration. He says this policy makes sense.
3: It is appropriate
7: to
9: place this burden on the alien because the alien, of course, has the most information about the alien's case. If an alien has entered the United States illegally, there is very little that the United States uh, knows about that alien.
7: The Executive Office for Immigration Review, the governing body of the immigration courts, wouldn't comment on the policy, citing the ACLU's pending litigation. Pereira-Brito was voluntarily released on bond shortly after the ACLU filed the class action suit. He's wearing a GPS monitor on his ankle while his immigration case plays out. We asked ICE to explain the timing of Pereira-Brito's release from detention— An ICE spokesperson said in an email the agency doesn't discuss specific removal arrangements out of concerns for operational security. The two other named plaintiffs have also been released from detention in the wake of the lawsuit. Sitting in his kitchen, Pereira Brito thinks back to what it was like being jailed, seeing his kids through glass. He remembers the visit when his four-year-old daughter told him to move out of the way so she could break the glass and take him home.
1: You know, I try and the please to be strong to my kids, and I try not to cry when I see them. But after they go, I just go wet well in my bed and cry, cry, cry.
7: <laughs> Tatiana, the ten-year-old, fetches a napkin for her dad and then stands behind him, resting her head on his shoulder. Pereira-Brito is back to work for now as a painter and carpenter. The ACLU says the class action suit could affect hundreds of immigrants in New England, currently detained in Massachusetts facilities. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston.
3: One year ago, a longtime Vermont resident named Carl Ronga was deported back to his native Kenya. He had overstayed a visa and also misstated his immigration status on an employment form. Under the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy on immigration enforcement, he was forced to leave his wife and young child to return to a country that he barely knows. VPR covered the family's situation last year and recently checked back with Ranga and his wife, Rebecca. As VPR's John Dillon tells us, it's been a year
1: of loneliness with little hope for a legal solution to their separation. The first day of kindergarten is a big deal for a young family. The milestone, marked by hugs, photos, and waves through the window of a school bus, usually becomes a favorite life moment.
4: Emotionally, it's been uh, very tough and very rough.
1: Carl Ranga, speaking on a phone line from Nairobi, shared none of that with his six-year-old daughter, Rahema.
4: You know, not being able to put my daughter to bed or bring her to school or see her first day she started school. You know, see her to go to school the first time, you know.
1: Carl and Rebecca Ranga have been married for a dozen years, and for most of that time, they shared a life together in Vermont. That changed last year under a Trump administration policy that gave little enforcement discretion to federal authorities. Carl had overstayed a student visa and had also marked on an employment form that he was a U.S. national. He says it was an innocent mistake and that he read the form to ask if he was a resident of the United States. Mistake or not, Their legal avenues were exhausted. Carl Ranga was detained and then on a hot day last June, immigration officials took him to Logan Airport for a flight back to Kenya.
8: It's hard to put into words how it's like or how it feels. And I don't know anybody who's ever been in this situation. I don't know anybody who knows somebody in this situation.
1: Rebecca Ranga says there's no playbook or social corollary for this kind of family separation.
8: Nobody talks about it. Like if somebody dies in your family or you lose your spouse or you get a divorce or something, people do talk about it. They sympathize with you. You can get support um, from people who know what it feels like. I haven't been able to experience that kind of support.
1: But the wrongest situation is not unique. Besides the thousands of families separated at the southern border, Others around the country have been swept up in recent years by a federal zero-tolerance policy on immigration violations. VPR reached out to Customs and Immigration Enforcement, and the agency would not comment on Narangas' case. More detailed statistics on deportation were not immediately available. Erin Jacobson is an assistant professor at Vermont Law School, where she's also lead attorney on immigration at the school's legal clinic. Jacobson says the zero-tolerance policy has fundamentally altered the legal landscape for people like Carl Ranga.
6: It's just that it's completely indiscriminate because it's about a lack of discretion being employed by law enforcement as mandated by the Trump administration. They just don't care. It doesn't matter whether the person being arrested will then leave a family behind or not.
1: Prior to the zero-tolerance policy, Carl Ranga, who was a deacon in his church in Vermont and a stay-at-home dad for Rahema, would not have been a top enforcement priority compared to people who had committed crimes here, for example.
6: The only chance he would have had to stay here would have had to be just through the use of discretion by the authorities. And for a long time, they were exercising that discretion by simply allowing him to check in.
1: Carl's court appeals were denied, and Jacobson says his only recourse now to return to Vermont is for Congress to change the law. Jacobson got to know Rebecca and Carl when Rebecca studied at Vermont Law School. She says she knows it's tough for Rebecca to talk about her situation because it can lead to the politicized topic of immigration.
6: Like, you know, what why, what are you complaining about? He broke the law. And then to try to, you know, <laughs> you're just, trying to explain what happened to your family and your own personal situation, and it turns into a contentious policy discussion.
1: Rebecca Ranga and Rahama traveled to Nairobi last winter to see Carl. It was a great visit, and the six-year-old rebonded with her dad. But leaving was especially hard, Rebecca says. Messaging apps helped them stay in touch, but of course, they're still an ocean and continent apart.
8: It's not a hug or a, (laughs) you know quality time. It's just basically checking in with each other.
1: Rebecca is starting her legal career as deputy state's attorney in Addison County handling domestic violence and abuse cases. With her career just underway and Rahema in school, moving to Kenya doesn't seem possible right now. She's thinking more about how she could reach and maybe support other families separated under similar circumstances. She's not sure how or what form this would take, but wonders if there are ways families could get together in Canada or some other countries to reunite.
8: There's unintended victims throughout, you know, this broken policy. If we can't get our government to fix what's broken, then we as citizens maybe can do something to organize and to come up with some type of way that we can unify the families, reunite the families...
1: For Karl Ranga in Nairobi, finding work has been hard because of the country's tough economic situation, and because he hasn't lived in Kenya for almost 20 years, he says he feels a bit like a stranger in a strange land as he navigates the culture and employment prospects. And he misses his family.
4: i just like folks out there to know that the situation is inhumane to even just the children themselves. It's inhumane to the spouses, you know. I don't even know what to call it. You know, you're there, but you're not there.
1: You're there, but you're not there, he says. Never with the people you love. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Coming
3: up, Norman Rockwell had his doubts about his work. We'll learn about the friendship that helped him cope. But first, searching out the oldest forests in New England. It's Next.
2: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
3: When you venture into New England's deepest woods, they can feel ancient, like they've been there forever. But nearly all our region's forests have been cut down over the last few centuries to make way for farms, to use as building materials, and to burn as fuel. Brave little state, the People Powered Podcast by Vermont Public Radio went looking for answers when one of their listeners, Andrew Wild, asked, "Are there any patches of old-growth forests in Vermont?" Here's producer Angela Evansy,
10: Killington, Vermont, near the intersection of Route Four and Route One Hundred. There's a patch of woods off the side of the road. Um, okay, so where where are we standing?
9: So we're in Gifford Woods State Park, and we've just walked a short distance into the woods. I mean, we're not we haven't even left side of the road. Uh, but here we are standing next to one of these giant sugar maple trees.
10: It's a spring afternoon, and I'm walking around with Bob Zano. He's an ecologist with the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife.
9: Uh, maybe we should go a little further into the woods and get a little bit further <laughs> away from the road.
10: Okay, cool. This patch of forest looks pretty unremarkable, like what you'd see off any trail or road in the Green Mountains. With one exception, every couple hundred feet, there is a very big tree. Okay, here's another big maple.
9: Yeah, so here we are at the base of another tall and large diameter sugar maple. And I actually, I brought this, it's a diameter tape. Oh, cool. We can use it to measure the size uh, of this sugar maple.
10: Okay, let's do it. I'm just sort of pinch it here? Yeah. Okay.
9: Look at that. Exactly 40 inches.
10: Wow. What, um, for people who aren't, like, numbers-oriented, what are most Vermont trees in terms of the diameter?
9: I bet most trees that people see are closer to 6 to 15 inches in diameter.
10: Okay, and this one is 40. 40 inches. Yeah. Bob Zeno estimates this tree could be more than 250 years old.
9: You could hide behind this tree.
10: <laughs> yeah, and the two of us couldn't, we couldn't like touch hands if we were to try to put our arms around this tree. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. I'll confess, when Andrew's question won for this month's episode, I thought it was going to be pretty straightforward to report. Go to some pretty woods, see some big trees. It wasn't so simple. Is there, like, a master list that our question asker, Andrew, could look up and, and check out?
9: I know there's some books that have tried to uh, make those lists, but I don't think there's any comprehensive list. I think most of the places that are Old Forest, we may not even know about because no one's gone in there to count the tree rings and look for them.
10: Ecologist Bob Zeno broke this news to me in Gifford Woods State Park. It's one of the best-known patches of old growth in the state, even though it's only about 20 acres, spanning a busy state route.
11: Sure, we know about the old forest at at Gifford Woods State Park, and Cambridge
3: Pines, for example, and and a few others that we're we're aware of, less so on private lands.
10: That's Michael Snyder, the commissioner of the Vermont Department of Forests, Parks and Recreation. I called him up to see if his department, which has forests in its name, keeps a list.
3: Well, we yes, and no, and um, more and more.
10: Snyder says more and more, because in some ways we're still discovering what old growth remains here. More on that later. But then what about federal land? What old growth do we know about in the Green Mountain National Forest? It is 400,000 acres after all.
3: We estimate that there's about 737 acres at least that we've mapped and categorized
1: on the forest.
10: Jeff Tilley, with the National Forest, says most of that old growth is in remote pockets. There is a more established area, referred to as the Cape in Goshen and Chittenden, but it's not set up for visitors.
1: It's public
3: land, it's it's open to the public, but it is a sensitive area, The, the colluvial steep soils that are there are sensitive, which is part of the reason that there's not a lot of interpretive facilities or access.
10: So the short answer to Andrew's question is yes there are patches of old growth in Vermont, but there's no exhaustive statewide rundown. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about a ton of acreage. Here's Bob Zano again.
9: Statistically, it's probably zero in the the state.
10: 0% old growth forest or old forest.
9: Yeah, if we added up all the, the old forest acres in the state, they'd be just a small blip compared to all the forests in the state.
10: Well, not exactly 0%.
5: So in general, we have uh, less than half a percent of the old growth that we once had remaining east of the Mississippi. So nowhere in the eastern United States is there more than 1% that's in old growth.
10: Bill Keaton is a professor of forest ecology and forestry at the University of Vermont.
5: However, New York um, has somewhere between 200 and 400,000 acres, mostly in the Adirondack State Park. Although, interestingly, it's never been accurately mapped.
10: Compared to what Vermont seems like, dozens of acres or hundreds? I think
5: we're somewhere around 1,000 acres in total here.
10: Walking around Gifford Woods with ecologist Bob Zeno, I learned some surprising things about old growth. Number one, it doesn't look the way you might think.
9: Right, so there's that classic image of the thick, dark woods with big trees and nothing else. And uh, what really starts happening in old forests is that you get those big trees, but they're constantly dying. They're falling over. Their tops are breaking off. And so there's actually, in places, a fair bit of light coming into the canopy.
10: This is not some mythical avatar forest. It's not even a dramatic redwood forest, like what you'd find in California.
9: An old forest has big trees, but it also has young trees and middle-aged trees. This is a
10: surprising thing number two. It's not just about the big old trees. In fact, Bob Zeno puts just as much emphasis on trees that are dead and decomposing. You'll notice he doesn't even say old-growth forest, he just says old forest.
9: We can see standing here these, you know, one, two, three, four different down logs that are in different stages of decay. Uh, That's a real characteristic of old forests.
10: A tree that dies of old age or falls down in a windstorm turns into new habitat for animals and insects, and it can nurture new saplings. Bob gets very excited about trees that have tipped over and exposed their giant root systems. These are called tip-up mounds, and they are a defining feature of old growth.
9: So we can see here that on that tip-up where that soil is exposed, uh, there's new tree seedlings growing on it. They get uh, way up in the air, so they already have that 10 or 12 foot advantage of light.
10: But tip-up mounds are just one beneficial feature of old forests. Left to their own devices, ecologists say forests can do a better job mitigating flood damage and storing carbon. This brings us to surprising thing number three. For all its unique characteristics and functions, there isn't actually a clear-cut definition of old growth. And yes, that is a logging pun in poor taste. Clear-cut.
4: The threshold age kind of varies by species.
10: Commissioner Michael Snyder and others say the general starting point is an age of 150 years or more. Then there are other factors.
3: So it's age and what we call complex structure, which is the spatial arrangements and sizes of the trees in a forest. And then um, the third main component is minimal evidence of human
4: disturbance.
10: Complexity is key. And minimal evidence of human disturbance. Not none.
3: So not many stumps or tap holes in trees.
10: You know, I
9: look around this place here, and there's an abundance of sugar maple. And I can't help but think about, has someone done some maple sugaring in here? Have they cut a few sticks of firewood?
10: Bob Zeno says even the Gifford Woods may not have escaped the human hand.
9: Depending on how you look at it, that may or may not be old-growth forest anymore. But this is an old forest. And it's a forest where nature is primarily driving what happens here.
10: You can see how the capital OG Old Growth can become open to interpretation. And that's probably why cataloging all of Vermont's areas has been so tricky.
5: So again, I don't want to diminish the significance of those remaining fragments. Those are important, and we need to conserve them.
10: Back to Bill Keaton, the UVM professor we met earlier. And with all due respect to our question asker, Andrew... Bill says we should be asking a different question about old growth.
5: I would ask, what is the future of old growth on the New England landscape and in Vermont? And does it have a future? You know, are there places where we might try to restore and promote old growth forests?
10: Bill takes me on a tour of the UVM Jericho Research Forest. He's been working on an experiment here for almost 20 years. And when he started out, the forest was like an adolescent forest. Your very
5: typical, kind of young to mature, secondary, northern hardwood hemlock forest.
10: Most of the trees were 60 to 80 years old.
5: Just very homogeneous.
10: And Bill was wondering, is it possible to help the forest age?
5: How do we take a structurally simple forest like this, that's in this kind of mid-stage of development, and and how do we push it along faster towards that more complex Um, later stage of
10: development. You can't speed up time, but can you help the woods develop some of the beneficial characteristics of old growth? It turns out the answer to that question is yes.
5: So I'm about to show you this experiment where we're testing something called structural complexity enhancement.
10: Bill leads me to some plots where he's been testing methods to help promote the conditions of old growth.
5: So right here, you've crossed a boundary line into uh, what we've created here, and I hope you'll notice the differences as we walk in.
10: Yeah, so it definitely seems like more uh, trees on the ground.
5: Absolutely, thanks for noticing.
10: <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
5: <laughs> and I'm particularly proud of this right here, this tip-up mound, as we call them which we've created all throughout here, very
10: typical... Instead of waiting for the wind to blow this tree over, Bill used a skitter to pull it down and tip up its root mass. And just like the tip-up mounds in Gifford Woods, this one is now sprouting little yellow birch and hemlock.
5: Which is just incredibly gratifying to me to see how well this has worked.
10: There are other down trees and also standing dead trees. This is all Bill's handiwork. It's messier over here.
5: That's exactly what we're going for, and I'm so glad you noticed that. that The minute you you cross the boundary, it becomes messier. You see the downed wood. You see the big dead trees that we've created there and there. You see the the gap in the canopy. You see the tip-up mound. You see the the multi-layered canopy with trees of all sizes and ages and at different positions in the canopy. Uh, To some people, that looks messy. It looks cluttered, and they don't like that. It doesn't fit the ideal that's Some people have of a forest and yet that's precisely what we're going for here.
10: Bill's been testing this stuff for 16 years but he's run some models to figure out that he's helped this plot quote age or develop characteristics associated with old growth about twice as quickly as it would on its own. It's also storing more carbon than plots with conventional management aka logging and Bill firmly believes that anyone who owns forest land can promote old growth conditions whether you're logging or just tending to the woods behind your house.
5: Leave some of those brush piles on the ground. Leave the woody debris. Leave the slash. Think of all that stuff as habitat. Think of it as carbon. Think of it as services that that forest has provided. We, we have to move away from this, this ideal of the, the clean forest or the, the forest that we can see into beautifully from our backyard. Um, that might be aesthetically pleasing like a park, But it's not nearly as good for a lot of wildlife and other things.
10: We learned earlier that Vermont's old forests are facing the same threats as the rest of our woods. Bill is particularly concerned about invasive species. And he says they may ultimately transform what Vermont's old growth looks like
5: hemlock woolly adelgid, Asian longhorned beetle, emerald ash borer, beech bark disease, which of course has already decimated the large beech. All of these things are gonna interact with climate change and they're going to stress this ecosystem. And uh, so how all of that's gonna play out into the future is still uncertain, but I'm convinced that there is a role for old growth on the landscape in the future.
10: He's convinced, Bill says, because when it comes to climate change, forests with old growth conditions may be more resilient.
5: The recent research has shown that old growth is highly resistant to climate, or at least more so than maybe some other kinds of, of forests.
4: Hmm. That's really interesting, the idea that you can Create characteristics in the ecosystem of the old growth forest. That's that's really interesting.
10: I looped back to our question asker Andrew to share our answers to his question. He was surprised.
9: I am surprised. I was particularly surprised about how certain places became preserved, like this aspect of some of them being overlooked. I'm also somewhat surprised by, like, what they would just look like. Gets challenging some of my conceptions
4: of what those places are actually like.
10: Andrew says now that he's learned a little, he wants to learn more.
12: Now I want to go to Gifford Woods and see what that's like, and potentially some other places.
10: Well, I hope you make it to Gifford Woods.
12: Thanks.
3: That's Angela Evansy. That story comes from Brave Little State at Vermont Public Radio. You can hear more. Just go to our website, nextnewengland.org. The health of our region's forests is the topic of a recent article in the journal Frontiers in Forests and Global Change. It examines an idea that's the opposite of deforestation. It's pro-forestation, allowing forests to grow to maturity, creating a natural forest ecosystem. Susan Messino is co-author of that paper, and she's a professor at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut.
13: Well, a natural forest ecosystem would be essentially the self-sustaining forest ecosystem that evolved in New England. So an old growth forest would be a natural forest ecosystem. And some of our older forests now are um, essentially getting to the point where they're going to be, you know, within the next few decades, starting to transition to old growth forests. There are certainly reasons why we would manage our forests for resources, but there's also a wealth of evidence that... Natural forest ecosystems have great benefits in terms of carbon sequestration, um, diversity of many types of species. Some species we haven't even discovered yet. We're still discovering new species in New England. You know, potential for new medicines, provide maximal flood protection, and also provide human health benefits. So we try to look at this from kind of an interdisciplinary scientific perspective, which is, I think, what we really need now for our forests, given that they're so important in um, addressing our global crises in climate and biodiversity.
3: Your paper uses the term proforestation, which I had not previously, I I will admit, heard of. Could you explain what that that term means?
13: Sure. So when we were trying to look at all these forest values and benefits um, and the critical importance of nature-based solutions... Um, we realized there was a lot of talk about afforestation, so growing forests where they aren't now, and reforestation, so letting forests regrow. Um, But there really wasn't a focus on letting existing forests grow, which is the quickest and most effective way to sequester carbon, particularly in this, this latitude and climate in New England where our forests are still relatively young. They're still... Um, not even half of their potential um, because they've been regrowing since we were largely deforested.
3: If there are so many benefits to this type of of forestry maintenance, what are the barriers that you see to it right now, especially in our region?
13: I think we need to kind of apply um, interdisciplinary science to forests because they are so critical. And I think that it's been primarily a forestry-based approach to Forests, which of course has value. Um, But I think that given the critical issues we have, we need climate scientists, we need evolutionary biologists, we need ecologists, we need public health experts. We need a very kind of um, more systemic approach to our forests to understand what is the best way forward and how can our forests serve the greatest good for the longest amount of time. Um, and, you know, use our public resources to maximize public benefits.
3: On one hand, of course, we're thinking about the carbon sequestration potential of northeastern forests and how they might help us combat climate change. But the forests themselves are changing because of climate change. You mentioned insects that are invading that have certainly changed the character of which trees survive and which ones don't. Invasive plant species have changed the makeup of the forest floor I, I'm wondering how much we're seeing these forests change over time with climate change and how much that enters into the calculation of how we should let them continue to to grow and thrive without being managed by by people
13: you know this is a this is a complicated issue but in general I think that we have a lot of Um, hubris in the ability of our big brains um, to solve problems. And I think that we really need to adopt a first do no harm attitude. I'm an experimental scientist and I believe in experiments, but I don't think we should be doing wholesale experiments with the natural world. And um, that's kind of what's gotten us into the problem that we have right now. Um, so I, I believe that we should be trying different things, but we absolutely need to leave some places that are managed by nature.
3: Susan Messino is co-author of the recent article called Intact Forests in the United States, Proforestation Mitigates Climate Change and Serves the Greatest Good. We'll have links to that on our website, nextnewengland.org. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
13: Thank you, John.
3: Coming up, an exchange program connecting faraway Indonesian islands and the nearby Berkshires. It's next.
2: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust.
3: In 1953, American illustrator Norman Rockwell moved from Arlington, Vermont, to the small town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, on the western edge of the Berkshires. While there, Rockwell developed a relationship with a prominent psychotherapist who came to influence the artist's work. Their relationship is the subject of a new exhibit at the Norman Rockwell Museum. It's called Inspired, Norman Rockwell and Eric Erickson. Lily Tyson has our story.
14: Norman Rockwell was born in New York City, but his most iconic work depicted life in small towns, like Stockbridge. He drew inspiration from both the people living there and from the New England landscape and architecture. In one painting, Stockbridge Main Street at Christmas, he depicts the town center, lit up with Christmas trees, cars covered in snow, smoke rising from a chimney, with the Berkshire Mountains in the background. Edward R. Murrow came to visit Rockwell and Stockbridge as part of his interview show, Person to Person.
12: Norman, from our quick tour of Main Street, Stockbridge appears to be a most pleasant town, and I know that personally from driving through it. Yes, uh, we like it very much here. Uh, We've been here, I think, about six or seven years, and we, we really love it.
14: But the reason Rockwell moved to the town wasn't because of its New England charm. He and his wife moved because of an institution that's based there, the Austin Riggs Center.
15: In 1951, his wife, Mary, uh, began seeking treatment for alcoholism and depression at the Austin Riggs Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which was a, a small but very significant hospital, which was on Main Street in town. That's Stephanie Plunkett, the deputy director and chief curator of the Norman
14: Rockwell Museum. Rockwell himself started treatment at the center shortly after his wife.
15: I mean, obviously, Rockwell was extremely concerned about his wife, Mary, and and her well-being and the well-being of his family. Uh, So he was certainly seeking counseling to deal with those challenges. But in addition, um, you know, as a very prominent and very busy working illustrator, uh, the stresses of constant deadlines, of always having to come up with new ideas, um, with struggling with his
14: place in the art world? Rockwell was treated by the renowned German-American psychoanalyst Eric Erickson. Here's Deborah Solomon, author of American Mirror, The Life and Art of Norman Rockwell.
15: He could hold his own in the tormented artist department with any masters from any time. He really agonized over whether his pictures were good, whether he had done them as well as he could do them, and... um, and I think that Erickson helped assuage his doubts and make him feel more assured about his canvases. This was a day-to-day problem with him.
14: You can hear these doubts from Rockwell himself.
12: thousand days I put in on this thing already. I figured I'm either one of three things. I'm either unbelievably untalented, but got an awful lot of perseverance, or else I'm unbelievably stupid, or else I am an artist. I mean I am seeking perfection. This is what I'd like to think. But I don't know.
14: Rockwell worked closely with Erickson, who was known for coining the term identity crisis and for his work on the eight stages of development. Both Rockwell and Erickson were interested in ideas of identity, both individual and that of the entire nation.
15: Here's curator Stephanie Plunkett. Both Rockwell and Erickson were observers of human nature, very close observers. And um You know, they really, I think, in their focus came to understand um, who people were at their core. And their similarities went on from there. Rockwell's work, which
14: depicts everyday life, often deals with ideas of development and growth. And Erickson had once even considered pursuing a career as an artist, a creative side of him that strengthened his relationship with Rockwell. Here's Jane Tillman, the director of the Erickson Institute for Education and Research at the
2: Austin Riggs Center. What one brings as a therapist is a culmination of life's experiences, uh, one's own experiences uh, and skills. And so I imagine that part of what Erickson would have brought to his role as a therapist is a kind of curiosity, uh, creativity, an interest in seeing things uh, in new ways. The relationship led the artist to begin depicting subjects with more
14: sadness, more emotion. And occasionally, Erickson's ideas showed up in Rockwell's art such as in the painting Family Tree. It was on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post in 1959. Starting at the base of the tree, a pirate and a young woman, then a man in a tri-cornered hat and his wife. As the family tree grows, more faces are added, including an aristocrat and his wife.
12: Eric came to see me today, and uh, he made a couple of little comments, and I've made some changes on the tree. I've cut out the sprig of leaves that go out beyond the aristocrat's wife, so that she's now uh, not directly connected with the tree, and neither is the barmaid connected with the tree. I've made the limb heavier. That was his suggestion. I make it grow heavier as it gets nearer to the, to the severed trunk.
14: Erickson's <laughs> suggestions changed the look of Rockwell's painting and its meaning. The artist was pleased. He said, I think this makes it a lot more interesting. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lily Tyson.
3: The Norman Rockwell tape used in this piece was courtesy of the Norman Rockwell Family Agency. And the exhibit inspired Norman Rockwell and Eric Erickson is on display at the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, through October 27th. It takes more than a day to fly from the Berkshires to the country of Indonesia. With more than 250 million inhabitants, Indonesia is Southeast Asia's most populous nation. It's also the world's largest Muslim country. Its nearly 20,000 tropical islands are home to beaches, mountains, rainforests, and bustling metropolises like Jakarta. Indonesia's islands may be half a world away from the Berkshires, but as Rebecca Shear tells us, an Indonesian born filmmaker living in Berkshire County is finding ways to bring her native home and her adopted home closer together.
11: Ian Perwanti was born on the island of Java in Solo a working-class community where neighbors helped neighbors erect one-room houses with dirt floors and bamboo walls.
16: And I wasn't born in a hospital. It's basically at home with midwives. And I was born premature. My mom says, I'm like a, a, a mice.
11: Indeed, baby Ian was like a mouse. She weighed less than two pounds.
16: So my mom has to make a makeshift incubator bricks with like a charcoal and then with like a warm bottle around it and then make sure that 24-7 guard it. So basically all the neighbors doing all those works (laughs) to keep me alive.
11: In fifth grade, Ian Perwanti's family left solo for Jakarta, Indonesia's massive traffic-choked capital. And when Perwanti became the first in her family to attend college, her neighbors scraped together her first semester tuition.
16: It was like $50, but that was like a lot.
11: Perwanti got an English literature degree from the University of Indonesia. And what happened next is like a Cinderella story.
16: It's just total miracles, really.
11: While working as a fixer for foreign journalists, Perwanti befriended an American photographer who brought her to New York City to help finish a documentary.
16: I don't bring any money. There's no money in my pocket. You know, if you see my home in Seoul and then you've been the U.S., uh, this is amazing.
11: That same photographer inspired Perwanti to stay in New York and get an MFA in documentary making. She even chipped in funds. After that, Perwanti married fellow filmmaker George Cox, and while the couple was collaborating on a documentary in Vermont, they got a hankering for country living. But when they moved to the Berkshires to start a production company, Perwanti had some reservations.
16: Am I going to be the only brown people in the area? Like, am I going to meet friends? Like, how am I supposed to know people?
11: She also worried that her New England community wouldn't know much about her Southeast Asian one. So she organized a night of Indonesian films, dance, and food at a cafe in West Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Hopefully
16: it will help in like bridging the cultural gap and also like shattering stigma image of like culture in Indonesia.
11: The event was so successful, Perwanti followed it up with an Indonesian country fair, then another. Her newest venture is a cultural exchange program, inviting young women from Indonesia and the Berkshires to visit each other's countries and produce a documentary to screen back home. Genevieve Naylor is the program's first participant. She and Ian Perwanti are still jet-lagged as they click through footage they filmed at an elementary school in Java.
10: In other schools, it's
16: like very disrespectful to walk in with your shoes on. And at this point, I'm walking in with my shoes off. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take your shoes off? Yeah, eventually. <laughs>
11: 19-year-old Naylor grew up in the Berkshires. Before her trip, she says she viewed Indonesia like many outsiders do. Um, They think earthquake, they think tsunami, they think um, terrorism. But then she spent three weeks there, visiting mosques during Ramadan, cavorting with fans at a soccer game, and sampling the country's famous street food.
10: I was actually a vegetarian before I went there. And then on my first day, (laughs) I had soto, which is like a beef soup. (laughs) And it's like so good.
11: Naylor's favorite thing was meeting new people. From the cabbie who taught her Indonesian words and phrases in exchange for English ones, to the
10: stranger who offered her a place to stay. And that proves how friendly and welcoming they are, really. Even to a uh, bule like me, which means foreigner. <laughs> One of the
11: first words I learned. Ian Perwanti calls her exchange program Chinta Hutan. That's Indonesian for love the woods. The logo is a blazing, heart-shaped campfire.
16: We are so human since the beginning of time. You always get together around the fire. And where the fire is, where the love is, there's a connection.
11: There's also life. Just think about Ian Perwanti's neighbors stoking the fires of that makeshift incubator on that dirt floor and watching over a premature baby the size of a mouse.
16: The community come together and just like making sure you're alive. And that's love. Perwanti says they'll screen Genevieve
11: Naylor's documentary in the Berkshires, New York, and Washington, D.C. later this year. Then, in 2020, Perwanti will bring an Indonesian woman to the U.S. so that she can experience the culture, meet the people, and feel the love, too. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear.
3: You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced this week by Carlos Mejia and Katie Talarski. Thanks to Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon for their music. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public Radio.